The reading is taken from Nehemiah chapter 2, starting to read at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat and the Horonite, the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May I speak and may you hear in the name of the living God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, it's a great privilege for Mandy and I to be here um, this morning and we very much enjoyed being here last night at the gathering. It was a great do and I'm sorry if you missed it. You missed some wonderful puddings. 
I had one made by Joyce and I wasn't ill in the night at all. Now, Nehemiah really cared for his city, his people, uh, the Jews, and for his city, Jerusalem. And it said in chapter 1 that he sat down and wept, that he mourned when he heard what Hanani, his brother, told him. The walls of Jerusalem are broken, the gates are destroyed, a disgrace and a shame. I wonder if any of you asked Tim how Stoke City did yesterday. Not good news. It's a pity Ian Palland isn't here because he and I share um, support of the same team. And if you ask me about Chelsea lately, beaten last week by Liverpool with £50 million Torres in the side, I'm ashamed. Disgrace. My nephew from Whitchurch, who is a Liverpool supporter, has been sending me humiliating texts. I have become a laughing stock in my family. At the end of November, I was lucky enough to travel to our link diocese of Matlasane in South Africa. And the flight from Heathrow was due to um, set off at 8 o'clock. So the end of November, just as the snow and ice had begun in this country... We were due to fly, um, take off at 8 o'clock. We sat on the tarmac for five hours at Heathrow because there was no de-icer available. Heathrow only has two de-icers and one of them was broken. So we're all waiting in a line. But it was just embarrassing. One of the major airport in the world, not enough de-icers. And the air steward was saying to me, the poor facilities here in Heathrow, they're absolutely shocking. Madrid has no trouble coping with ice and snow. No such trouble in any other European airports. Embarrassing, humiliating. Nehemiah is so sad that his city stands in ruins. His people are in exile. His land is overruled. God's vision for his people and his covenant promises seem to be in ruins. Now you remember the greatness of that vision. How when God chose Abraham, he chose a special family to be the bearer of his name, to live his ways, to be the means of bringing the whole world back to himself in relationship. So God makes this special covenant. And he says to Abraham, your descendants will be more than the specks of the dust in the desert, more than the stars in the sky will be your descendants. You are to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, a beacon for the whole world. So God chose his people, his special family, to be a pilgrim people who would follow a pilgrim God. And yes, we're to be peculiar, distinctive, to stand out but also to be an indigenizing people, people who will engage with the world in which we live, to live among so that we can therefore communicate the good news. That was God's vision for his people, and it's the vision for the church today. And of course, God's people, the special family, forgot their calling. They went after foreign gods. They broke the covenant. The temple in Jerusalem 
the place of God's holiness, was meant to be the house of prayer for all nations. But Israel forgot her calling to be a blessing to other nations. She thought the blessing was for herself alone. She did not see that her calling to be Yahweh's people for the sake of those who did not yet know Yahweh. The commandments were broken, the prophets were ignored, and so judgment came. Destruction of Jerusalem and temple, the people are exiled, the Holy Land is occupied by foreigners. Humiliation, ruin, disgrace. Nehemiah heard about it, he felt it, and this is the point, he really cared. He cared. And what about us? How much do we really care about the state of things at the moment? That 80% of children in Shropshire grew up in ignorance of who Jesus Christ is. That the local church's impact in the community may have diminished. That the number of confirmation candidates here at Christchurch was very low last year. That we're not making many new disciples, but we may be just living off transfer growth. Be interesting, actually, I'll do this as a survey. So I'm not trying to depress you all, we will move on from here. But um, how many here are Christians but have never had any Christian background at all? Two, three, four, oh, five at the back. Any more? It's like the auction last night, this, isn't it? Five of us out of about, I don't know what we are, 70, 80 maybe. But of course, and that's great, it's wonderful. And it's wonderful that people are carrying on in the faith. You've grown up in the faith and you're carrying on. But we know that out in the nation as a whole, there's probably 40% on average who have no Christian background at all. So if we're to make any impact, we need to be reaching into those people who've never had any Christian background. The Serengeti River, some of you will have seen, um, is it David Attenborough's sort of marvellous um, uh, wildlife programs, but you have probably saw the one of the Serengeti River when the drought comes. You know, they show you all the desert in bloom and then suddenly the drought comes, the Serengeti River gets smaller and smaller. And all the life, the crocodiles and everything else, descend into about one or two pools that are left. All the life of the desert goes around and in the pools where there's some oxygen and some nutrients left in the midst of a drought. The danger of places like Christchurch Basin Hill and Holy Trinity Meal Brace is that we can become deep pools that collect the last life of a dying church. We come here because we get oxygen and nutrients and good teaching. But we can also suck the lifeblood out of outlying places and churches. It's a bit like big Tesco's can shut the local stores. Now, I'm not saying we do that because big churches like this also have the potential to be resource churches, 
to give life elsewhere in the river terms to be wellsprings that flow out and bring new life to desert places. And that's my hope and prayer for this place, that you'll become a resource church that gives life and feed and new energy to smaller places where resources are few. God wants to see his creation reconciled to himself, his kingdom rule everywhere. Those held captive to be released, the good news for the poor, sight for those who are blind, freedom for all who are oppressed in any way. And he chooses you and me, his church, to be the special agent by which he brings in his kingdom. The church, if you like, is to be a beacon, a sign of God's kingdom, a foretaste of heaven, a place where you know people are going to turn the other cheek, where there's going to be naturally a forgiving attitude, where people will go the extra mile, where there'll be generous hospitality, acceptance and love, a foretaste of heaven. We are the body of Christ, we say. When people meet the local church, will they meet the living God? That's the test for us. Interestingly, the word parish, an ancient Greek word, means um, those outside the house. Not the insiders, but the outsiders. So the parish church is not to be an exclusive place, but an inclusive place for the local stranger, for those who don't know the way, the life and the truth, for those who don't yet know that they have a place in the heart of God, for those who are ignorant of their room reservation in heaven. If you like, church is the inside place for the outsider, we are here for them out there. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. The only club, as William Temple said, that exists for non-members. So Nehemiah's mournful sadness at his broken city, the state of his nation, his people forgetting their true calling, I think this is a challenge for us today. How much do we really care? So what does Nehemiah do? Does he wallow in his sadness? Does he soak in the mire of his lament? Well, no. He turns his lament and his mourning into prayer. And Nehemiah is a prayerful and godly person. And he allows the king to see his sadness, it said at the beginning of chapter 2. And the king inquires, well, why are you sad? You're not normally sad. And Nehemiah tells him about his own city and the temple of his ancestors lying in waste. A sickness, a sadness of the heart. And for what do you make your request? And Nehemiah, verse 4 of chapter 2. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king before blurting out his request he prays it's probably one of the great arrow prayers of the Bible this isn't it 
Um, he shoots up a prayer to God before he answers the king. Um, I've always wondered what valid prayer really is, and I quite like uh, John Wimber's um, uh, definition of this. He says there's two types of prayer. You'll probably disagree with me here. The first is, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. I'm in a mess. And the second is, help! And I sort of like that. Because in some ways our prayers are often like that. There's intercession for people, but actually a lot of our prayers are, please God, help us. They're prayers of urgency. My favourite prayer, the prayer of the Breton fisherman, um, who has to face the dangers of the Bay of Biscay. My boat is so small, and the sea is so big, please God, help me. And Nehemiah's arrow prayer is possibly that. Please God, help me now. And we need to notice, however, that the arrow prayer does not just come out the blue. You'll see that in chapter 1, Nehemiah has been praying and fasting for a number of days. An arrow prayer is fine for a top-up. To pray on all occasions, really, I suppose. Before meetings, visits on the doorsteps, when you're in trouble. But it's not a substitute for solid discipline of time with God every day. Shooting off an arrow prayer only works if you're in range of the target. And we know that unless we're close to God in prayer, what do we have to share anyway? If we're not open to God, how can he direct us? So the heartbeat of any mission activity must first of all be our relationship with God. Because all we're doing is being God's people. And if we're not open to him, how can he direct us to make the difference in his world that he wants to do? How can we allow God to get a grip of our lives? Mission without prayer is like riding a bike without a chain. Lots of activity, but you get nowhere. And I love the fact that you're obviously putting a major emphasis on prayer here in the church with your one meetings. Good news, that. And I hope people will support that. And maybe you'll get a sense as a community of where God is leading you and directing you in his missionary activity so that he can use you to bless this community and the other communities where you live. Nehemiah's prayer and his prayerfulness grows from his care for God's city, God's people and God's vision. And it's together that this care and his prayer leads to his faithful risk-taking. Those of you from very good evangelical pedigree will think I've missed a trick here for three good points made alliteratively. You could have said care, prayer and dare, but I'm not doing that. It's faithful risk-taking, so I'm hoping you're going to remember it. It took me years to realise that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but faithlessness. And it's not how much faith you've got that matters, but who you've got your faith in that really counts. Nehemiah shows immense courage and faith. First of all, in looking glum before the king, because that could be a death sentence. It's a sign of disloyalty. Off with his head if you seem to be sad. He risked it. 
and maybe he was waiting for an opening, he responded to the king by making his request about Jerusalem. Maybe this had been following long, anxious days, waiting for the right moment. But Nehemiah will have known well enough the possible consequences for speaking out that were dire. And it's not just stepping out of line in terms of court etiquette, but risking the rebuilding of a city in the king's realm was very suspicious. Especially as this king had actually stopped the rebuilding of Jerusalem a bit earlier. Just read Ezra 4 for that. So he was taking a big calculated risk. His own life was in danger. But his care for his city, what was going on, and his faith in God made him step out. He must have been frightened. And yet he still went and asked. And we know that courage is not a lack of fear. It's stepping out even when you're scared stiff. Nehemiah dares to make the big, big ask. First, it's for a leave of absence from the city. He is the wine bearer of Arthur. He's got a job, but can I please leave the city? And then he also asks for letters of introduction of safe conduct and for introduction to the keeper of the royal parks, Asaph, to give him timber for the rebuilding of the gates and the, and the city walls. So if you like, he doesn't just say, um, please king, can I go, and I won't be very long, and it won't cost very much, and won't be much trouble. He, he, it's not some mealy-mouthed, unctuous plea. He's not trying to make the request more palatable to the king. He goes for the big, the best, he seeks excellence because he knows that in the end, this king is not in charge. It's the king of the universe is in charge. And that's where he gets his care and his prayerfulness from because he remembers that God is the one who's ultimately in charge. And that's why we can have faith and that's where courage can come from. Nehemiah goes for the full monty of requests not something half-hearted. As Moses neared um, the Red Sea, the people of Israel, fresh out of Egypt, was snaking behind him and he asked God for reassurance. God, you will part the sea for us and let us across, won't you? Moses, I promised it, said the Lord. Yes, I know, sorry, I just wanted to make sure. And then Moses reaches the side of the sea. He raises staff, he stretches out his hand over the water to divide it, and nothing happened. And outwardly pretending nothing was amiss, he says quietly to God under his breath, Lord, I thought you promised to part the sea for us. And God replied, I did, and I will. Set off, and I'll part it when you're up to your necks. And this is the truth of faithful risk-taking. That God will act, but he often seems to do it at the last minute, the eleventh hour, to test our faithfulness. Risk-taking obedience is required by God's church today. Possibilities of failure and there will be opposition. Sam Ballot and Tobiah will be waiting mission-orientated churches which care about God's world 
which are prayerful in their plans are more concerned to be obedient and take the risk rather than risking failing through not taking it. So it's my prayer that God will bless you here at Christ Church as you become all that he wants you to be for the sake of his kingdom in Basin Hill. Amen.